I am a mother. My mother dances. My grandmother taught me my first steps as she told me the butterfly story. My daughter is seven years old, and we dance together at all the powwows. We love our family, and we dance to honor them. I dance for my people. I dance for my brothers and sisters. My brothers and sisters are from everywhere, all over the world. homelands. All right, let's go. The Umatilla, the Cayuse, and the Walla Walla people. We are the Plateau people of the Pacific Northwest. Native people are doing everything today modern. We're not just doing traditional things. We are doctors and lawyers. We are artists. I love to snowboard. I love to longboard. I love house music. That was a fast ride. We are living in all worlds and we can show up in our indigenousness to anything as well. 
My name is Acacia Red Elk. I'm a jingle dancer and a yoga teacher. When I look back, I wanted to be a dancer so bad, but the reality that I was in, I never thought it would happen. I went on to win a lot of competitions. One year I won 42 powwows in a row. That was interesting for me because I had to learn how to start accepting myself too. Like, who am I to win this? And that was something I learned along the way to start loving myself and believing in myself because I never did before. This is Patishwe. It is white fur. Before I like to really start handling my regalia, I always like to smudge. I like to smudge my feet. When I was young, we weren't really a powwow family. Uh, my mom and dad owned an auto body business and they worked every day in the shop. My mom is Scottish, Dutch, French, and Norwegian with a little bit of Seneca and Mi'kmaq in her. So she was this white woman that married this native man. When I was six years old, I caught on fire and burnt the backside of my body. I spent three months in the Burn Concern Center in Portland, and that was really traumatic for my family. My father started drinking again, and um, he wasn't able to quit, and he died on my ninth birthday. You know, it just sent me and my siblings into a downward spiral. That just gives me a little more support. And so when I'd go to the powwow, I would watch them dance, and I was so, I was just in awe of how brave they were and how proud they were. Fast forward like two years, my sister got a dress made for me, and when I opened the Christmas present, I was super excited. I was like, oh my gosh. But then I realized that I was gonna have to dance that night at the Christmas powwow, and I was so scared. I just remember like, stepping my first few steps out onto the dance floor, and I started crying. I had been pitying my legs for the scars, and what happened to me, I was just pitying my life. And then this was the body and the legs that were carrying me out onto the dance floor, so it was just a really special moment, and it changed me. I got the powwow fever and we just like hit the powwow trail. My name is Paris Layton. This is my family. This is my wife, Acacia. Here's me putting on, getting half dressed. And I learned a lot from my kids' dad. He taught me how to make regalia. He taught me how to be a better dancer. There's my lady. She's completely dressed now. Not all the way. Well, she's still got to put her feathers and beadwork in her hair. So. We're ready to go into the powwow. Grand entry starts at one. Every dance has their origin story. The men's traditional dance, you've got the feathers on their back. They're the warriors. They tell the story of their battle. The women's jingle dress dance comes from a dream. About 1915, 1920, during the Spanish flu pandemic, and 
a young girl was really ill and her father was a medicine man, so he went to seek vision. And in that vision, he was brought into the sky by the Northern Lights people, and they sent him home with a gift that would heal the people and heal his daughter, and that gift was actually a sound. And the people got well when they heard the sound. And so they brought this dress to surrounding communities and it grew and grew in numbers. And then our dances were taken away from us. And it was outlawed to even practice your culture in that way, especially doing dances. When we were allowed to be able to start practicing our culture again, they started having what they called a powwow. People were coming from different tribes and it was a celebration of song and dance. And if you wanted to compete for prize money, you could. And so it kind of became like a sport. It's pretty crowded in here, but uh, as you can see, we make do. This is the way we live every weekend. For a lot of people and for my husband and I for a long time, we didn't have work outside of powwow. We just lived on the powwow trail and took part in our culture. And there was years that we did 50 powwows in a year. But the Gathering of Nations in Albuquerque, New Mexico, it's the biggest powwow in the world. And basically, if you win at that powwow, you're world champion for a year. The first time I got first place at that one was like the biggest win that I had ever had. I was 24 years old, and I don't think anybody had won a contest there from my tribe. It's interesting to think about growing up as a half-breed and sometimes feeling like, where do I belong? You know, I had to learn how to start trusting my voice as a leader and gaining that confidence knowing that I was carrying the name of my tribe with me and representing them too. Okay, so you guys are all just gonna be looking up this way and we're just gonna start out with some basic steps and we're gonna find the beat and then we're just gonna start moving through the different dance styles. And with that came a lot of girls from our home wanting to become dancers. So we're not just loosely dancing, right? That's how the guys dance, they get really loose. But the women dance like this. They're proud, look at my chin. They keep their head up and if they look down, they look down and then look back up. And they stay proud. A little bit faster. Okay, ready? Let's go, forward. Try to be light as a feather. This is where it starts. They learn the steps because those first steps are really hard to learn. There's a lot of footwork and stuff involved and all of that is good for the brain. It's good for your joy, for your happiness, for your heart. So crossing your feet. And it ripples outward into the whole family. You know, it's like that sound of the jingle dress. It's the sound of the bells. The sound that the regalia makes, it, it ripples outward and people feel it. See how it has that sound? Powwow dancing has just been a special gift for everybody. Get it, girl, get it. All right, now let's kick forward. Now you guys step back. 
so we're just gonna start out by just kind of arriving. We already know where we are and these are our homelands. We're connected in every way to these lands. And we've never got to practice in this park together like this, in this area. This is part of the old July grounds. And our people used to camp here and have celebrations here in this area. When I started yoga, my dancing became so much better. What's your name? I went to my first yoga class about eight years ago. And then we're gonna bring our hands to our heart. Keep holding this. In class, she said, take a deep breath and let it go. And I just started crying. And I was like, oh my gosh. I didn't realize that yoga, I just didn't know. Inhale, arms up. In my mind, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get certified as soon as possible because I want to travel around and share this practice with as many Native people as I can so that we can start healing faster because we have a lot of trauma to heal from and yoga can help us to do that. Scoop up that earth energy and smudge yourself. Let's just keep going a couple more times. This is the alarm clock generation. We've been hitting snooze for a long time and people are starting to get up and, and wipe their eyes and look out of those foggy lenses. People are using their voice and being brave. Everybody is looking to be a part of something special, something bigger. And as indigenous people, art is, is a part of healing. I got to do a collaboration with Superman. He is a hip hop influencer. And that was about six years ago. And that really opened the doors for a lot more modern collaborations, contemporary collaborations that I've been a part of. I got to do a really neat music video with Portugal the Man and Weird Al Yankovic. Thank you so much for having us here. We're so honored. I am a part of Indigenous Enterprise, which is a Native American dance troupe. We got to open a show in New York City for Indigenous Peoples Day. They had built this circle in the middle and nobody even knew we were coming out. It was a lot of younger generation and a lot of them had never seen that type of dancing before. And so it was really neat to be able to know that they were exposed to modern day natives, sharing the beauty of our pizzazz in today's world. So we're coming back to ourselves. We're using our culture to be more strong today and sharing it with people so that we can build bridges. Tonight's episode is dedicated to all of the many different ways and people and to the true story of the holidays. So we will start off this segment with the real story of Rudolph. Body talk. Hang on.
Donner! Donner, baby, I'm so sorry I'm late. I got your page, but I was at the reindeer games and the traffic out of the stadium was... Blitzen, it's okay. Donner? Doe or Buck? Well, I took him out before I could really... Him! It's a buck! It's a buck! It's a buck! Oh my god, it's a buck! A horribly mutated buck. What? Donner, Blitzen, I have good news and I have bad news. What's the good news? The good news makes absolutely no sense without the bad news. I don't care. I want to know the good news. All right. I cut off your son's nose. What? You miserable little troll. I will fly you into the sun. Let me explain. Your son was born with a rare nose condition called regluminose nasalia. English, Doc. Your boy's nose glowed red. What? So we underwent a quick surgical procedure and voila. You just cut off his nose? It's standard procedure. What did you have to do? Oh, it's very technical, really. Cut off the red parts, filled it with tar. You wouldn't understand. Why didn't you ask us? Oh, I'm sorry. I just figured you didn't want an ugly freak show circus act for a son. Stupid f***ing reindeer. At least he's healthy. I guess. It just doesn't seem right. there, folks. You know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen, but do you recall another reindeer? Uh, hi. Rudolph the reindeer had a nose, and if you ever saw it, you would even say nothing! All of the other reindeer used to accept Rudolph completely! They never let Rudolph lift anything heavy on his own! Here, let me get that for you. Thank you. Then one foggy Christmas Eve, Santa came to say... Ho, 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 Rudolph, you can't help! Christmas is ruined! Then how the reindeer had unfair, unexplained expectations of Rudolph! And they cried! <laughs> Rudolph the reindeer, you're the same as any other reindeer! I don't know why, but I'm sorry! Here, you idiot! This episode of Bike Talk is dedicated to all indigenous people everywhere. All the original cultures, the original ways. Bye, talk. Since time began, the tribal people of Middle Oregon would gather on winter evenings to hear stories of coyote and other animal people. It was a way to pass on lessons for life. These lessons are still important today. One winter night, Coyote was lying on his back singing a dancing song. As he looked up into the sky, he noticed the stars were twinkling brilliantly, and never had they been so brilliant before. Coyote remembered long ago someone had told him that all stars were beautiful Indian girls. Coyote thought, 
you would like to go up and see the girls, the beautiful girls. So he went through the woods asking how he could go up to the heavens. He crossed Spider, and Spider said that she would weave a long rope. And the giant redwood tree said he would bend down to earth and throw Coyote up into the sky. So the giant redwood tree bent himself back down to the earth, and Coyote climbed on. And when the giant redwood tree sprung and threw Coyote up into the heavens, and when Coyote got to the heavens, the girls weren't twinkling at all. They were dancing. Coyote was so overcome at the sight of so many beautiful Indian girls, he just stood there and stared and stared and stared. The girls were dressed in white buckskin trimmed with beads, porcupine quills, and shells. When Coyote came to himself, he rushed up to them and said, I would like to join you in your dance. The stars answered, You couldn't dance with us, because we dance day and night, year after year, forever and ever. We never stop. But, but, Coyote said, Surely if, if any girl can do that, I, a big brave, could also dance forever. But the stars said no. Coyote begged and pleaded and teased until the girl said that he might join them. So Coyote joined hands with the stars and danced all over the heavens. He was fine the first night, but the next night, Coyote got tired. He didn't want the girls to know he was tired, so he asked, May I stop to get a drink? I am very, very thirsty. The stars answered, No, we told you to dance on and on, forever and ever. They danced on and Coyote began to get more tired. His back was aching, his legs were aching. So he called out, May I stop and get a bite to eat? I am very, very hungry. The stars said, You must dance on and on and never stop. Before long, the stars were dragging him through the heaven. Soon one arm came off and then the other arm came off. Because Coyote could no longer hold on to the stars, he fell back to the earth. As he fell through space, he passed moon. Coyote called out, Someone help me! But not a sound from moon. When he was nearing earth, he saw eagle soaring and he called again, Help me, uncle! Help me, uncle! Please help me fall on a mossy place. But eagle just whistled and soared away. Now in Klamath region, there is a great hole in the ground that is covered with red dust. The Indians say, this is where Coyote fell, and the red is his blood. Oh, yo, wait, oh, hey, 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 hey,
There's a lot of old style in our men's traditional dances today. Excited Delirium, EXDS, also known as Agitated Delirium, AGDS, is a controversial diagnosis, sometimes characterized as a potential fatal state of extreme agitation and delirium. It is typically diagnosed postpartum in young adult males. Disproportionately, black men who are physically restrained at the time of death, most often by law enforcement personnel. Symptoms are said to include aggressive behavior, extreme physical strength, and hyperthermia. It is not listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders or the International Classification of Diseases and is not recognized by the World Health Organization. The American Psychiatric Association, the American Medical Association, or the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. It is accepted primarily by the American College of Emergency Physicians. Excited delirium is particularly associated with taser use. A 2017 investigation report by Reuters found that the excited delirium had been listed as a factor in autopsy records, court records, or other sources in at least 276 deaths that followed taser use since 2000. Manufactured by the, fire, uh, the firm Axon, 
the makers have been involved in police training in its use, publishing of numerous medical studies which promote their product and other promotional activities. <clears throat> there have also been concerns raised over the use of sedative drugs during an arrest following claims of excited delirium. The drugs ketamine and midazolam, or benzodiazepine, and polyhaloperidol uh, injected into a muscle, an, an antipsychotic, have sometimes been used to sedate a person at the discretion of paramedics and sometimes at a direct police request. Ketamine can cause respiratory arrest, and in many cases, there is no evidence of a medical condition that would justify its use. The term excited delirium is sometimes used interchangeably with acute behavioral disturbance, a symptom of a number of conditions which is also respond which is also responded to with involuntary injection with benzodiazepines, antipsychotics, or ketamine. A twenty twenty investigation by the United Kingdom's forensic science regulator found that the diagnosis should not have been used since it has been applied in some cases where other important pathological mechanisms such as positional asphyxia and trauma may have been more appropriate. In the U.S., a diverse group of neurologists writing the Brookings Institution called this a misappropriation of medical terminology used by law enforcement to legitimize police brutality and to retroactively explain certain deaths occurring in police custody. The American Psychiatric Association's position is that the term is too nonspecific to meaningfully describe and convey information about a person. The term excited delirium was first used in the 1985 Journal of Forensic Sciences article co-authored by Deputy Chief Medical Examiner of Dade County, Florida, Charles Victor Weddle, Charles Victor Wetley, from entitled Cocaine-Induced Psychosis and Sudden Death in Recreational Cocaine Users. The JFS article reported that in five of the seven cases they studied, deaths occurred while in police custody. Wetley determined that 19 women, all black prostitutes, had died of the condition due to sexual excitement while under the influence of cocaine. In 1992, police announced that they had found a serial killer responsible for deaths determined by Wetley to be excited de delirium. The legitimacy of the condition has since been under controversy with most of the medical community not recognizing it, and there is no official entry for it in the official diagnostic, diagnostic and statistical manual of medical disorders. The supposed risk factors include bizarre behavior generating phone calls to police, failure to respond to police presence, and continued struggle despite restraint. It supposedly endows individuals with superhuman strength and being impervious to pain. It is disproportionately diagnosed among young black males and has clear undertones of racial bias. In 1849, a superficially similar condition was described by Luther Bell as Bell's mania. Bell was one of 13 other mental hospital superintendents who met in Philadelphia in 1844 to organize the Association of Medical Superintendents of American Institution for the Insane now the American Psychiatric Association. This is from Wikipedia. Now we're gonna to listen to April Satchel give a speech.
unexcited delirium and the effects on the community.
They have no one, no, no training. None of them are doctors. Who gave that diagnosis to say that Zach was in that state? In a story about taser-related lawsuits, Rutgers reported that a 2011, uh, of 211, 222 medical examiners nationwide found 14% of those medical uh, modified diagnostic findings due to the possible threat of litigation from Taser, your stun gun maker. And that 32% said that threat could affect future decisions. As early as 2014, every single police department got a restraining memo that said, depending on amount of electricity used or number of times used, that tasers can cause cardiac death. Let me give you a definition of excited delirium. Since Excessive dopamine in the brain triggers manic excitement and delirium, which unabated culminates in a loss of atomic, autonomic function that progresses to cardio-respiratory collapse. Usually, those that are in custody, you got it. So if we're, not t if we're not being accountable, Zachary was in custody, correct? Most of those unfortunate people die of postural asphyxiation, restraints which prevent breathing, excessive force and lack of care. Restraints have been implicated as contributing factors. Deaths associated with use of electronic weapons almost always occur in young men involved in civil disturbances or criminal activity. These situations are associated with high levels of circulating catecholamines. Patients with acute stress cardiomyopathy usually have physical or emotional stress High levels of catecholamines present with an acute coronary syndrome, but will have normal coronary vessels without significant formation. They have unusual left ventricular dysfunction with so-called apical apical.
use your voice. Use it. It is, it is very powerful. We cannot continue to let these things happen to any one of us, no matter race, gender, likes, dislikes.
growing through the raws Heal up like scars, music medicinal Mushu technique original Turtle owl subliminal Sovereign not criminal Mindset medicinal Malie ofa Agwe ganganaruwa Najoni go wobila washte Some say namaste Prayer sent right away X1 gamma ray Through the Milky Way Convey the message Maintain the elements Being the medicine Earth is my residence Discard the arrogance Atlantean, Lumerian Bundles we carry them Luminarian surgeon Lyrical valiance Warrior ambience Sacred like the salmon is Talented, talonish Feeding the famish, organic, no contaminants, abstract alchemist, catalytic catalyst, falcon animate, thunderbird fabulous, ill phantom shit, bandit immaculance, crafting the magic magicness.
Myself. I didn't want you around. Those pretty faces always made you stand out in a crowd. But someone picked you from the bunch. One glance was all it took. Now it's a much too late for me.
Hey Doc, can you have a look at my idiot friend here? White Swan, Washington, 1500 bucks. Won a thousand at United Tribe in Bismarck, North Dakota. I got a full set of fancy dance puzzles at Rocky Boy. I picked up a thousand for first at Poplar, Montana, and I paid off all my bills. He's good. He's fast. He's got style. He's got control of all his moves. He spins and he turns with ease. He's the fastest. Every year I tell myself, this is going to be my summer. I'm going to win big all over, everywhere. People go crazy on these long trips. They get the space madness. Relax, Cabin. How about that? A three-course meal. I need some real food. Oh, my beloved ice cream bar. As soon as she can, she escapes with a rock. Dr. Engel, is there such thing as insanity among penguins? I try to avoid the definition of insanity or derangement. I don't mean that uh, a penguin might believe he, he or she is Lenin, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. But uh, could they just go crazy because they've had enough of their colony? Um, well, I've never seen a penguin bashing its head against a rock. Um, they do get disoriented. 
may end up in places they shouldn't be, a long way from the ocean. These penguins are all heading to the open water to the right. But one of them caught our eye, the one in the center. He would neither go towards the feeding grounds at the edge of the ice, nor return to the colony. Shortly afterwards, we saw him heading straight towards the mountains, some 70 kilometers away. Dr. Ainley explained that even if he caught him and brought him back to the colony, he would immediately head right back for the mountains. But why? One of these disoriented or deranged penguins showed up at the New Harbor diving camp, already some 80 kilometers away from where it should be. The rules for the humans are, do not disturb or hold up the penguin. Stand still and let him go on his way. And here, he's heading off into the interior of the vast continent. With 5,000 kilometers ahead of him, he's heading towards certain death. you take advantage of my blithering idiot I'll teach you to hey what's so freaking important you interrupted my scongeely what you don't know the story of Rudolph I'll pull up an ice pick I mean an ice block and I'll tell you everything well not everything Jimmy the Antler and Frankie two times. There was only one problem. <laughs> oh. <gasps> oh, no. Hey, Frankie, look! It's a raid! The cops are here! You'll never be in Santa's gang. Never be in Santa's gang. Ho, ho, ho! 
Donner and Blitzen just hijacked a shipment of pure snow. We'll make two million easy. There you go, boss. Who the f are you? Who the f am I? I'm Yukon Cornelio, the greatest hitman of all. And I've got a special present for you, compliments of one disgruntled elf and red-nosed reindeer. Were you talking to me? You talking to me? Yes, but did we ever ask why people go crazy? Slavery is as old as human civilization, dating back beyond recorded history, and it exists even still today. Every culture on every continent practiced some form of slavery, whether it was serfdom, indentured servitude, or collective peasantry. However, when the slave trade is mentioned, people normally think of the black African slave trade to the Western Hemisphere during the colonial period from 1500 to the mid-1800s as practiced by the European colonial powers. Estimates range from 10 to 13 million Africans being brought to the New World, with around 10 million surviving to be sold in North and South America as well as in the Caribbean islands. Of this number, the best estimate 
is that 450,000 went to the British, French, and Spanish colonies in what is now the United States and Caribbean. Brazil alone received almost 5 million, the rest going to the Spanish colonies in South America. Slavery still exists in the world, yet most of the major powers ignore the fact and refuse to even acknowledge that it still exists. It is still quite active. Yet, six decades before the American Civil War, a war was fought by the United States on foreign shores to try and stop the white slave trade. What was the white slave trade? Does it still exist? Who were the Barbary pirates? What was the result of American intervention? How did it occur, and what was the aftermath? And how did nine U.S. Marines and their mercenaries make history and give birth to a legendary fighting force while also ending the white slave trade in North Africa? Hello, I'm Colin Heaton, former soldier, Marine Corps scout sniper, history professor, historian and book author, and we will answer these questions and other issues on this segment of Forgotten History. During the late 18th and early 19th centuries, the world was on fire as France and Britain were engaged in the Napoleonic Wars, which was another series of conflicts just like the Seven Years' War, again involving every nation in Europe. The Seven Years' War was also known as the French and Indian War in the United States. Both these conflicts were fought on every continent and on every ocean and in every colony. Even during these protracted wars, the transatlantic slave trade continued. It was big business. While the European powers were destroying each other, Thomas Jefferson became the third president of the United States from March 4, 1801 to March 4, 1809. And he had several major issues to contend with. The Louisiana Purchase of 1803 from France doubled the size of the United States. The Yazoo territorial disputes in western Georgia were hotly contested. The launching of the Lewis and Clark expedition in 1804 to explore the newly acquired country and the contested issue of slavery. In 1806, Jefferson denounced the international slave trade as a violation of human rights and called upon Congress to criminalize it. Congress responded by approving the act prohibiting importation of slaves the following year. No longer could slaves be brought from Africa, although slavery was still legal in the United States. Then there were also the rising tensions between the United States and Great Britain, which dominated the final years of Jefferson's second term, as the Royal Navy had been seizing American merchant ships and impressing sailors. However, one situation which has gone largely unnoticed in history was Jefferson being the first president to send the military overseas into direct action, the war against the Barbary pirates. For decades prior to Jefferson's accession to office, the Barbary Coast pirates of North Africa had been capturing foreign merchant and warships, stealing their valuable cargoes and enslaving crew members, while often demanding huge ransoms for their release. Many of these ships and crews were American. Before independence, American merchant ships were protected from the Barbary pirates by the naval and diplomatic influence of Great Britain, which had threatened the use of military force should their ships be molested. However, that American protection came to an end after the colonies won their independence. The Barbary pirates also attacked the coastal northern Mediterranean, launching attacks against France, Italy, and Sicily, kidnapping women as white slaves, primarily and whenever possible, notable wealthy persons and ships for ransom. 
In their feverish search for white women slaves, a few pirates even went as far as the coast of Iceland, raiding inland to kidnap women and bring them back to North Africa. North African slave markets thrived, as under Islamic law, known as Sharia, although fellow Muslims could not be enslaved, non-Muslims could be and were. Over a period of more than 300 years, it is estimated that one million white Europeans, to include those captured at sea as well as through land raids abroad, were enslaved. Many of these were Americans captured at sea. In 1794, in reaction to the attacks, Congress had passed a law authorizing the payment of tribute to the Barbary states. Part of that law was the Naval Act of 1794, which authorized the construction of six frigates establishing the United States Navy. By the end of the 1700s, when Jefferson was Secretary of State, the United States had concluded treaties with all of the Barbary states, the Ottoman regencies of Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli, along with independent Morocco. When Congress authorized $80,000 for Morocco to not molest American shipping, it was considered a good deal, as it was a cost savings when compared to the loss of ships, cargo, and sailors. The Bay of Algiers, Mustafa Baba, also agreed and many American merchantmen were escorted by Portuguese warships, as Portugal also had a treaty with the Islamic states. But Jefferson was opposed to paying tribute, which he considered to be a modern Danegeld, when Saxon England paid the Danish Vikings not to attack. It did not work. Although Morocco and Algiers initially agreed, just weeks before Jefferson took office, Tripoli began attacking American merchant ships in an attempt to extract further tribute. Jefferson had seen enough. Jefferson tried diplomacy, and his letter to Pasha Yusuf Karamanli emphasized our sincere desire to cultivate peace and commerce with your subjects. Pasha Karamanli, the ruler of modern-day Tunisia, felt that the Americans had insulted him by not offering to pay tribute. He threatened continued actions if not so respected. Pasha Karamanli was already at war with Sweden, having broken an existing treaty. After Sweden agreed to pay annual tribute and ransom for 131 captives, Fourteen Swedish merchantmen had been seized by Tripolitan Corsairs. Some of these were white women who were being transported on Swedish merchantmen, and it is not known if they were ever recovered, as the white women were rarely ransomed. They were highly prized and sold. The Pasha then declared war on the United States on May 14, 1801, by chopping down the flagpole at the American consulate in Tripoli, a direct act of war. Jefferson sent three frigates and a schooner under the command of U.S. Navy Commodore Richard Dale as a show of force and to protect U.S. ships entering the Mediterranean through the Straits of Gibraltar. Dale learned of the declaration when he reached Gibraltar on July 1st, 1801. From that point, Dale's ships blocked two of the Pasha's Corsairs operating as raiders and messengers inside the harbor. Yusuf Karimanli was shocked at the American audacity. The Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, Selim III in Istanbul, was also less than amused, yet did not interfere when the Americans became involved. He had just concluded treaties with Russia and Austria, and was trying to westernize his empire along western lines. This included eliminating the white slave trade, and this position was not favored by many of his subordinate regional leaders, especially in North Africa, and they launched a revolt against him and his cousin, and successor Mustafa IV had him murdered in 1807. He was not about to give up such a lucrative business. The U.S. blockades halted Barbary trade and raids with Europe, but did not stop Tripoli's trade with the other Barbary states. It did, however, incite the other rulers, who considered siding with the Pasha, and they expelled their American diplomats. The United States was putting a major dent into their pirate enterprises, 
to include the white slave trade. The possibility of Tunis, Algiers, and Morocco joining forces as a result of losing this lucrative business became a serious concern during 1802, but in 1803, Captain Edward Preble was the new American naval commander, and he was aware of the white slave trade and piracy, and he began to deal with it. On September 12, 1803, the USS Constitution arrived off the Barbary Coast to confront the Tripolitan pirates. In October 1803, the frigate USS Philadelphia ran aground and was attacked and seized, and the 307-man crew was held for ransom. In response, on February 16, 1804, a group under Navy Lieutenant Stephen Decatur slipped into Tripoli Harbor after dark, boarded and set fires that destroyed the Philadelphia. The Pasha, in response, demanded an outrageous sum and ransom for his American hostages, even threatening death if it was not paid. In 1804, Commodore Samuel Barron, aboard the USS President, took command of 11 vessels, and he had new orders. But due to illness, he handed command of the squadron to Captain John Rogers. Jefferson had again seen enough and decided to take direct and immediate action. He sent the order. Ex-Consul William Eaton, a former Army captain who used the title of General, and United States Marine Corps First Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon would lead a force of eight U.S. Marines and 500 mercenaries to take Derna and free any hostages. These mercenaries were Greeks from Crete, Arabs, and Berbers opposed to the regime and started on a march across the desert from Alexandria, Egypt in April 1805. Their objective was to capture the Tripolitan city of Derna. The Muslim troops were under the command of Egyptian Sheikh El Tahib, the Ottoman Empire Viceroy. William Eaton, who was overbearing and not very friendly, kept himself aloof from his men and was in overall command but leading only half the group. He had a tough job controlling the largely undisciplined mercenaries and the infighting between the Christian Greeks and Muslims, few of whom were professional soldiers, became a problem. His promises of money and loot once they took Derna was looked upon skeptically. However, O'Bannon and his eight Marines embedded with their mercenaries shared food, hardship, water, and earned their trust. O'Bannon decided to take the Muslims from Eton, exchanging them for his Greeks. The Marines built a strong fellowship by not denigrating the Islamic faith. They discussed their similarities and differences. O'Bannon also knew that many of these men had either been hostages themselves or had lost friends and family to the white slave trade. Eaton reported in May 1805, quote, Our only provisions are a handful of rice and two biscuits a day, end quote. From March 22nd to March 30th, several Arab mercenaries under the command of Sheikh Hamid el-Tahib staged mutinies. By April 8th, when he crossed the border into Libya and Tripoli, Eaton had quelled the Arab mutinies, but he could not stop the desertions. In late April, his army finally reached the port city of Bomba, some miles up the coast from Derna, where U.S. Navy warships USS Argus, Nautilus, and Hornet, with Commodore James Barron and Captain Isaac Hull, were waiting for him. Eaton received fresh supplies and the money to pay his mercenaries. Argus gave an additional cannon to the troops. On April 26th, Captain Hull's ships then opened fire and bombarded Derna's batteries for an hour. Meanwhile, Eaton divided his remaining army into two separate attacking parties. The attack began at 1445 hours, with Lieutenant O'Bannon and his Marines leading the attack with 50 inexperienced Greek gunners. Eaton's force was halted due to high volumes of enemy musket fire, but O'Bannon pushed his men through the inaccurate fire, as witnessed from the ships. K. 
Carefully interchanging his men into various ranks to fire, advance, reload, and continue the process, O'Bannon's force took the Fort Cannons. Eaton wounded in the left wrist would report later that O'Bannon with his Marines and Greeks had, quote, passed through a shower of musketry from the walls of houses, took possession of the battery, end quote. Eaton's forces caught up and turned the defenders' own abandoned guns against them, pushing them out of the city and into a well-placed ambush set up by O'Bannon just outside the main gate. During the entire battle, O'Bannon lost two men killed and three wounded Marines, with nine of his mercenaries killed. Eaton's losses among the Muslims is unknown. O'Bannon raised the flag over the captured city at 1,600 hours. They had just defeated a force four times their number who were in a fortified defensive posture. And for the first time in American history that a flag from the United States had been raised on foreign soil. Hostages were freed and the Navy sank the pirate ships in harbor. Accurate naval fire from Argus and the other ships forced them back and Derna remained in American hands. Yusuf reluctantly signed a peace treaty on June 10, 1805, aboard the USS Constitution. The treaty granted American ships passage through the Mediterranean without further payments of tribute and freedom from harassment. This also meant joining the other European nations in halting the very active and overt white slave trade. The war was over, and so was active white slavery from North Africa. Marine Corps legend has it that Hamet presented O'Bannon with a Mameluk sword, a sign of prestige and power. Emboldened by this event, more European nations also increased their naval presence and resisted the Barbary pirates, stopped paying tribute, crippling their commercial trade and extortion rackets, ending their raids on southern coastal Europe, ending hostage-taking and their demand for ransoms and the white slave trade. Presley O'Bannon and his eight Marines had done the seemingly impossible, but it would not be the last time Marines were called upon to do the impossible and succeed. Simplify. We hope you enjoyed this segment of Forgotten History. Please click like and subscribe for free. And please stay tuned and be engaged and informed. Send us comments if you have questions or even show ideas. And we will respond to all requests and comments as soon as we can. Thank you. Have a merry freaking Christmas And you'll hear what we have said Don't you squeal or rat us out Or you will end up Don Rudolph, thank you for seeing me on Christmas Eve. It's my pleasure. Have a seat. And what can I do for you, my most valued friend? I want to start my own line of toys. But the head elf, he stands in my way. I don't know what to do, Don Rudolph. You can start acting like an elf. <laughs> What's the matter with you, crying like a gnome? <laughs> Don't worry. I'll take care of the head elf for you. What will you do? I'll make him an offer he can't refuse. You come, Bratzi. Yes, Doc. I have a job for you.
Left this on the doorstep, Rudolph. Open it. What the hell is this? North Pole message. It means Yukon Brazi sleeps with the penguins. Oh, Yukon. I want all inquiries made. I want no acts of vengeance. I want you to arrange a meeting of all the heads of the reindeer families. Yes, Rainfather. Don Dasher, Don Dancer, Don Prancer, Don Vixen, Don Comet, Don Cupid, Don Donna, and Don Blitzen. How did we ever let things get so far? We must stop the bloodshed. The war ends now. What are you going to do, Rudolph? I'm going to wait until after the baptism. Then we'll take care of all the family business. We are gathered here in the sight of the spirits of Christmas present, past, and future to baptize this new baby toy. Rudolph, do you believe in Christmas? I do. Rudolph, do you renounce the Grinch? I do renounce him. Do you renounce all the Grinch's works? I do renounce them. Then I baptize this baby toy in the name of Christmas. They say you butchered them, killed them all. Rudolph, is it true? This one time, Clarice, I'll let you ask about my affairs. Is it true? Are you a murderer? No. <sighs> I'm gonna get a drink. Yeah. <laughs>